Okay, Hebrews, part two. As we work our way through this book, what you'll, I hope you'll begin to get a feel for is you'll get a feel for the uniqueness of this book, um, and you'll also be able to see the, the way the book flows and the way it demands that uh, these, these first four verses are not necessarily an indication of how we'll work through the whole book because the book sort of ebbs and flows. So there'll be times where the book will demand that we take a bigger piece to understand the fullness of what's being said. And there's times like this where we're just having to lay groundwork in these first four verses. So uh, just a couple, I try to just get you started every week with a way to, to get your head around um, the challenge of the author of Hebrews and, and what the book is setting out to accomplish. So suppose God sent you to encourage a group of new Christians who, because of their conversion... So it's your job. You're to go and encourage this group of new Christians. Uh, You've got brand new Christians. You've got some people who are on the fence, have not yet uh, converted to Christianity. They're seekers. They're listening. They're thinking about it. Then you've got some people who have converted that are maybe uh, thinking about defecting because of some of the things they're facing. And so you're the one sent to encourage them. So some of these people are facing severe persecution. Now you just got to think about what, what would you say? What would you say to somebody who's, whose life was in danger because of the fact that they were a follower of Jesus or some of the people, their loved ones were suffering. And so the people that they cared the most about in the world were being persecuted because of their faith. And so there would be this very strong urge to uh, do whatever you had to do to uh, resolve this, to alleviate the suffering of the people that you cared about. Maybe family members are coming, are coming to them and saying, please, you've got to stop this. I mean, you're hurting our family. You're hurting people that you care about because of your following of this Jesus. You've got friends of these people who have departed the faith or are talking about departing the faith. And so there's a, uh, just a, a strong pull to just bail out. It's just too hard. And you've got to come up with words to say. What about some who've been rejected by their own family? So now their, their own family has rejected them, banished them. They're outcasts. And so their family would gather together for, for celebrations or whatever the case may be. But they would be exiled, not allowed to be a part of that. And so that would be very, very difficult. Some were vulnerable and wavering in their faith. Then you've got some, now these are, these are one audience of people you're here to encourage. So good luck with it. I hope you got your notes ready. So they need encouraging. Then you've got a contingency of them that are just struggling because the teachings of Christ are just hard to believe. They're so counterculture. They're so out of this world. They're so opposite of everything you would expect and think and 
assume in your own strength everything that you've seen growing up that you know? How could this possibly be true? Many of them be asking the question, I mean, if, if this Jesus is really God, shouldn't following him be easier than this? I mean, surely if he's God, he's going, he could do something to help those who follow him. What kind of God would not help the people who are his followers? I think that's a fair question. I mean, we live in a world saturated with all of these different situations, but especially that one. So what would you say? I'd love to hear it. That'd be a tough crowd, wouldn't it? But here's, here's what I would say. The best way to address them would be to do exactly what the book of Hebrews does. If you ever want to know how to deal with these situations or what to say, well, you've come to the right place. Because this, in my opinion, is the absolute most wonderful way in which to address these problems. Show them how Jesus is better than everyone and everything else in the universe. You see, here's, here's the mistake people often make. When, when people are, are suffering because of their faith or they're, they're considering, you know, they're, they're facing persecution or whatever the case may be, the mistake that people oftentimes make is, try, is trying to just address their persecution, address their suffering, address their rejection by their family members, whatever it is. But that's a mistake because here's the thing, the pain is real. Trying to tell these people that the pain they're suffering, the rejection they're suffering, the, the, the questions that they're asking are dumb questions, bad questions, or these things aren't as bad as they think they are, is a, is a faulty methodology. They are bad. It is tough. I mean, the teachings of Christ are hard to believe. I mean, if you've read your Bible, you know that. So the answer to the question is not to try to tell them that, oh, they're not hard to believe or, oh, they're, but just display for them to the absolute best of your ability how amazing and awesome Jesus is, that he is infinitely better than anyone or anything else in the entire universe. And when you get a hold of that, you can go through, you can take anything, you can survive anything, you can, it doesn't matter what comes. And so that's the position of the book of Hebrews. So let's pray and then we'll read these first four verses. Father, we thank you for your perfect, inerrant, beautiful, wonderful, spectacular word. Thank you for the gift of being able to study tonight together. Thank you for what we can hear. If you give us ears to hear, if you illuminate our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us, God, what could happen? So thank you. Thank you for the perfection and the relevancy, the usefulness in the here and now. Thank you for how tonight can transform tomorrow and the week to come. 
May it be so for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First four verses of the book of Hebrews. Let's read together. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, embedded within those first four verses are these seven sort of introductory reasons why Jesus is superior to anything or anyone else. And we've covered the first two. The first one last week was because he's heir of the Father's creation. So out to the side of number one, you might write the word inheritor. Inheritor. Number two, also covered last week, was he's the agent of the Father's creation. So out to the side, you would write creator. So we've seen that he's the inheritor and that he's the creator. And these last ones we'll pull together tonight. Now I'm going to warn you in advance that it's sort of like uh, scaling a mountain. And as you start to go, I mean, it's amazing in the beginning, but it gets better every time. And by the time you get to number seven, I feel like I'm standing on top of this, you know, uh, uh, just summit looking out across the expanse and this is all I could do Wednesday night just to hold myself together. So let's see what we can do tonight. So thirdly, we're going to see the radiance of the Father's glory. The radiance of the Father's glory. You see that in verse 3. Then we see that He's the exact image of the Father's nature. Now remember, what is happening here is every doubt or problem or struggle or suffering that's going on is being addressed by one of these reasons, one of these characteristics. Number five, he's the sustainer of the Father's creation. The sustainer. I mean, is verse 3 packed or what? Number six, the means of forgiveness, the means of forgiveness of the Father's creation. Forgiveness. And now, finally, the royal and priestly Messiah sent by the Father. Remember, these are people who were once stooped in Judaism. And so what they need to hear is this royal and priestly Messiah. Okay, let's jump in. So first of all, the radiator. The radiator. Verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Mm. Now let's think for a second about what is the... What does this mean, that he's the radiance of the glory of God? Now, there are some uh, folks that 
wrongly confuse this and sort of discuss it or translate it, define it as reflection. That is a, that's a mistake. Because the radiance of the glory of God is not a reflection. Now, if it was a reflection, if that's what the Bible said, then we would obviously know that that would be wonderful and good. So I'm not saying that it would be bad to be that. It's just not what the Bible says. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about radiance, which literally means shining forth. Shining forth. And so when the Scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, then what the Scripture is saying is that embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ radiates out the beauty and the splendor of God, radiates out from Him. So, unlike the moon, which is a reflector, it's beautiful and has a wonderful function, and it's gorgeous in its own way, but it's different. Jesus is not like the moon. Jesus is like the sun, which is the source of light. Shining forth is embedded in the understanding of something to shine forth is that it is, it is the source. It is, it is sending light out from itself. So Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He is part of it. As a member of the Trinity, he's part of the glory of God. So, for example, in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus is transfigured on the mount, Jesus goes up on the mount and transfigures, and Elijah comes and Moses comes, and the Bible says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so white that, that no, no, no one could bleach them that white. Now, he wasn't reflecting the glory of someone else from somewhere else. That was coming from him. He's the source of that glory. It's coming from him. And so, as fully God, he is radiating forth. So, to see Jesus is to see God. So, people who are wavering or suffering or struggling or doubting need to know that to see Jesus is to see God. So the only way to answer the question, well, what is God like? I mean, what, what is God like? Well, there's only one way to answer it. Jesus, that's what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus is the answer. That's how you know what God is like. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God. The way we know what God is like is because we know Jesus and we know the Word. And He is the Word. And so, He's the radiator. Now, second of all, He's the representor. So, we're climbing the mountain, climbing the mountain. So, He's not only the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, the word exact imprint, it refers to the image on a coin, which perfectly corresponds to the image on an engraving tool or on a stamp. And so if you imagine that there is a uh, piece of heated metal and a stamp, and the stamp comes down and it, it 
presses into the metal and whatever the image is in the stamp, it now is transferred onto the metal. And so not that if you are holding a coin and it has a picture of a past president on it, that you're actually looking straight into the face of the president. You're not. You're looking at an exact imprint, not of the president. What is that coin an exact imprint of? The stamp that made it. And that's the point. It's the stamp that made it. That's what the, 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 the best way to understand this. So Jesus is therefore completely the same in his being as the Father. However, there is still an important distinction. Because both exist separately as do the stamp and its image, right? So you have the stamp and you have the image. And they're the same because the stamp pressed into the image, so they're the same, but they're not the same, which is kind of the conversation about the Trinity, right? They're the same, but not the same. And no matter what you, you know, no matter how you try to explain it, you're going to somehow get tangled up. I mean, there's... It, the same, but not the same. There's one, but there's three. There's three, but there's one. So how does that work? Well, you just have to think of things that, have, that are indivisible, but yet have distinct parts. So you're sitting there, and you are listening to me speak. But what's really happening is, is that I am thinking of words. I'm, I'm speaking words. I'm thinking speaking, then the, the vibration created by my voice is transmitting across and you're receiving it. But all you're thinking about or all we ever understand is that I'm speaking. But there's more than one thing happening as I'm speaking, although we would never you can't disassemble them because if you take away my thought, there's no word. If you take away my speaking, there's no word. And if you take away the, the sound waves, there's no word. So those three things have to exist for me to speak, think, speak, and you to hear, right? So there's three components of one thing that are indivisible, but yet they're all the same thing. Kind of. All right. So when we... See Jesus, we know just what God, what the God of the universe is like. That's what he's like. You see, he's the imprint. He's the image. So, so think about it. For thousands of years, people wanted to know what God was like. We wanted to, we wanted to see, we wanted to see what God would be like. We wanted to see it. Like we'd heard about, we'd heard about words, but we've never heard words. We've just heard about words, but we've never heard them. We don't know. We've heard that you could think, someone could think a thought, and then they could speak something, and that it could transmit, and that you could hear it. And so somehow that, that existed in our mind, but we've never really experienced it. But then suddenly, Jesus comes on the scene, and bam, we get it. We don't fully understand everything about it, but here's what we know. There's someone is thinking and speaking and you're hearing. Jesus comes on the scene and now we get this picture of God. We don't know 
everything about God, but what we know about God, we know from Jesus. We know how he thinks. We know how he talks. We even know how he relates to people. So we see in Jesus the character, the characteristics, the the nature of God. So he's the radiator. He radiates. He's the representer, the exact imprint of God's nature. And look at what comes next. And he upholds the universe by his power. So he is the sustainer, the sustainer. Now as we start to climb a little higher up the mountain, we still have some people in the audience that are struggling to believe and struggling to understand. and They don't, they're, they're, some of their, their doubts and some of their, the problems that they're facing are starting to, to weigh on them and Um, they're just uncertain. And so now we find out that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So let's just take a sidetrack for a second and think about some things. First of all, this destructive heresy that the church has battled known as deism. And believe me, it's alive and well today. So it really fully emerged in the 17th century and has made its way to America. And now deism argues that once God created, that God left everything within creation to fend for itself. So that a deist would say that there's a creator, which is good because I don't know how you're going to, you know, stand for very long on the platform that there's nothing and just something happened on its own. That's never happened in any other sequence or any, any other arena. Any, there's nowhere in the world where nothing just on its own became something. So that's not going to work. But what we could do is we could concede that there is a creator, but... The creator created, and then he's gone. And so this has taken all sorts of different twists and turns over history. And I think that, you know, uh, the further our uh, scientific uh, knowledge goes and our discovery goes, especially of, of space and the galaxies and the expanse of, of the heavens, uh, just so what the deists do is say, well... You know, we are, we're just one solar system, and there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of solar systems. And so we're just one. So we were created, and then the creator moved on and is off creating other things and, and no longer connected to what's going on here, not worried about anything that's going on here. It's completely irrelevant information. So someone just created and just let it go, just spun it up and let it go on its own just to spin along. So a deist would say it's ridiculous that, to think that we have a God who would intervene. 
No, no, it's a distant God who doesn't intervene with our uh, affairs. No. Mm -mm. So this sustaining God, the reason I say this is because uh, these, the fact that he's the sustainer is important to those who would take this position. That you can't know the creator God. You can't, you can't interact with the creator God. That he's not, he doesn't, uh, uh, praying is a complete waste of time. Who, who, no one, he doesn't hear your prayers. I mean, that's absurd. Well, it's important to understand the distinction between three things. Creation, preservation, and providence. Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about these, mostly because of my interaction with my scientific, unbelieving family. And so they would claim to be uh, atheists, although really, if you get down to it, it's really more of a deistic belief system that they would subscribe to. And so you have to understand the difference between creation, preservation, and providence. You can't lump it all together. So, as we've already seen early on in the first two that we dealt with last week, in creation, Christ calls all things into existence out of nothing. So the first thing is you have creation, which is calling something out of nothing. Now, we dealt with that in number two, the creator. Then preservation is Christ sustaining all things in existence. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. He sustains all things in existence. Then you move into providence. He takes all that he's created and is currently preserving, and then he directs it towards its proper end and conclusion. That's his sovereignty or his providence. Now, it only makes sense because as creator and preserver, you, would, you wouldn't preserve something if it, to just, uh, you see, if you just let it go on its own, well, then you wouldn't be preserving it. You wouldn't be preserving it if it didn't have a purpose. It wouldn't, uh, you create with a purpose. You, you preserve with a purpose. And so, therefore, there's this providence in the sovereignty of God. So, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. See, he's holding them together. So if you withdraw the sustaining power of God to the creation as we know it, everything would cease to exist. It would just be obliterated. Everything, person, everything, it would all be gone because it cannot exist apart from his sustaining power holding it together. The scripture says, in him all things are held together. Now you always, you got to remember, the Greek word for all is all. It always is. It's all things. It's not some things. It's not a few things. It's all. It's all being held together. He's sustaining it by holding it together. 
And he's orchestrating things to reach his God-ordained, sovereign goal. That's what he's doing. And so if you think about it, the world comes along and says, well, the only thing that ultimately we can know or trust are the things that are seen, felt, smelled, or heard. So they have to be tangible. That you can't come along and start talking to me about, about God if, well, I can't see God, I can't touch God, I can't. Can you tell I've had this conversation a few thousand times? Oh, I can't smell him, I can't taste him, I can't. You see, he's not tangible. You want me to believe in something that's not tangible. Well, I only believe in things that are tangible, that are scientifically provable. Oh. So you're saying that nothing just existing and then something just popping out of nothing is scientifically provable? Because that I want to see. Please show me that. I want to see the first person that can pull that experiment off. It's never happened. It never will. But yet here we all are. So how do we explain all this? There's never been an instance where nothing existed and then there was something apart from some external force creating that. That's never happened. Yet, here's all these things that you can touch, feel, smell, taste, right? They're all here. How did they get here? I'm waiting. Please get the microscope out and the, and the beakers and the chemicals. and the. I'm, I want to see it. You can't do it. You can't do it. So the world says, no, no, now we can only trust in things that are tangible. But the Bible says, the only reason there's even a physical reality to be touched, tasted, seen, or enjoyed is because Christ made it and upholds it in its being. That's the only reason. Every single thing. So yesterday, I had to mow my grass, and you know how fond I am of grass mowing. First, I was thinking about Pastor Matt and how psychotic he is. You should pray for him. You really should. I say that in all sincerity. The man, literally, his favorite thing in the world to do is mow grass. This is beyond my comprehension. I've worked on him. I've tried to influence him in this way. He just will not hear me. I mean, I have, we've had many discussions. It's just getting me nowhere. He just literally loves it. He mows his grass two times a week. What is wrong with you? It's literally torture. My grass is like a foot and a half high, and then I had to mow it yesterday. So when I got done thinking about him, then here's what I started thinking about. I'm mowing this grass that, by the way, today's already sprigged up again. You got that? It's already there. Which I was just thinking, you know, have you ever met anybody that said, Please don't raise your hand because it'll, it'll, it'll hurt me. Have you ever met anybody that said, you know what my favorite thing to do is? Like if I could do anything, you know what I would do? I would iron clothes. Like shoot me now. It's just like mowing grass. You mow the grass and five minutes later it's coming back. You iron a shirt and it's wrinkled. The minute you put it, you don't even get out of the house, it's wrinkled. It's just futile. I hate doing futile things. So anyway, point being, I'm mowing my grass knowing it's about to grow. But then I was thinking, 
every blade of grass is being sustained by his power. Every blade. Millions of blades of grass. I'm just mowing them down. But he's sustaining them all. You see, apart from his sustaining power, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't exist. They wouldn't grow. They wouldn't. All of it. He's holding that together. And so just for a moment, I, I almost spiritualized and enjoyed mowing the grass, but it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So he's the sustainer. He holds all things together. See, we tend to think that he, you know, our heart is beating because he's causing it to beat and our lungs are, are pumping in and out because he, and all of that is true. But listen, you got to understand something. There's, it's way more than that. I mean, it's down to the littlest, tiniest things that all things are being held together. All of it. All of it. All the totally inconsequential things that we never think about. He's holding it together. All of it. Sustaining. Okay. We climb a little higher to the purifier. The purifier. Hmm. So he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hmm. After making purification for sins, he. And that, to me, is a mind-boggling statement. The forgiveness that we experience. Understand something. It is not because of some natural law that's built into physical creation. We're not forgiven like we're subject to gravity. We're not, we're not forgiven because it's, it's built into the, the, the physical existence that we live in. No, no, no. We're not, we're not, we're not forgiven. If forgiveness isn't made possible by an angel. As there are hundreds of millions of people running around the globe praying to angels for forgiveness. It's just a complete waste of time. Complete and utter waste of time. You'll hear more about that in weeks to come. It's not a mathematical formula or a philosophical theory. You don't, you don't decode forgiveness. You don't, you don't unravel the mystery. It, it doesn't have anything to do with all the nonsensical garbage that's on the Discovery Channel about who knows what's the next uh, mysterious lost revelation about Jesus that's all a bunch of heresy. No, it's, not, it's none of that. There's no code. There's no secret. It's, not, it's none of that. What, the, what Hebrews wants you to know is just, the, it's the simplest, yet it's the most unbelievable reality in the world that the forgiveness that we experience is accomplished by a he. It's a person, an actual person who lived on the earth and walked on the earth and, and, and was tempted as we are and understands us in a way that no one could unless he was among us and one of us. You see, if it said after making purification for sins and then it was followed by any other word, but it says he, 
like just think about this for a second. He, that Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, he made purification for sins. That we can be forgiven because he made purification. See, that never gets old to me. Never. Now, let's understand what it's saying here, okay? The Bible's not saying that he's making purification. He's not making purification. See, it doesn't say that, well, after that, he started making purification for sins. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not that each time you mess up or each time you sin that Jesus has to rush back into the laboratory, has to rush back onto the cross, or has to go back and and redo some more stuff to make atonement for those sacrifices. No, no, he's not making it. He's not, it's not that he will make. So we're not hanging in limbo in some way that we're just sort of hanging wondering, well, are our sins going to be forgiven? I don't know. I mean, is it, are we going to sin too much? Is it going to overwhelm him? I mean, or are we going to make it in or not make it in? I mean, what's the criteria? How good is good enough? I'm not really sure. No, no, it's not, it's not making it or will make. No, he made purification. It is finished, final, once and for all atonement. For sin. Now, this is another place where I think most people just automatically go, oh, yeah, I got that. But I don't think most people have this. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we really get what the purifier has done. I think, I think we get, it becomes too common for us. And then it. We just ease sort of away from the reality that it is. See, everything required by an infinitely holy God to overcome and remove the barrier that your sin had created between you and him has been done. See, everything. All of it. Now, see, we... We understand that salvation comes, and at salvation we're forgiven from all of our sin. And then sometimes we go a little bit further, and we say, now we're forgiven for all of our sin, our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. Yes, but all of that has been overcome. Every single thing. That God had to overcome and remove the barrier. It's been, the veil has been split. There's no more barrier between us and Him. So, what you have to understand about this purifier is that it's over. It's over. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. There's no ongoing atoning work. That's done. It's over. It's finished. Complete. Done. So the purifier has done his work. So the only work that's left to do, the only thing that's left to do has nothing to do with us. The only thing left to do is to repent and to believe it and lay hold of Christ by faith. Receive it. That's it. He's done everything to remove all the barriers. So, 
when we repent and we believe and we lay hold of Christ by faith. Now, this sin that we're forgiven of, what is this sin that we're forgiven of? Is this some sin that we were, we were, you know, that maybe, maybe this sin's not, it's not really uh, our fault. I mean, I've talked to people and they, and they've said to me, they said, well, Tony, I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Now, I didn't have anything to do with that. And so now you're telling me that I was born into sin. Now I'm born into sin. Well, I didn't have anything to do with that. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't have anything to, I'm just born into it. And so now all of a sudden I'm supposed to repent for this sin that I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. I'm, I, wasn't ha- I didn't have anything to do with being born. And now somehow, and I say, no, sir, ma'am, just hold on a second. That the purifier came and removed everything, all the barriers between you and him. And it's from our sin that we needed purification. It's our sin. It's ours. That's the sin that needed to be removed. Now listen, Jesus didn't come to bail us out of financial trouble. Jesus didn't come to make sure that, we were, that we're healthy and that we, our, our, our bodies are healed and we don't have sickness. He didn't come to provide some kind of curriculum that we can work our way through that's going to lead us to some point of, of wisdom or knowledge or forgiveness. No, he's not articulating some psychological psycho babble that if we take these principles and apply them to our life or utilize this formula, we're going to feel better about ourselves? Uh-uh. No, that's not what happened. What happened was Jesus came and he purified. He made purification for sins. He himself personally did that. And the sin that he purified was all of our unbelief, all of our rampant, rampant idolatry, our self-indulgent efforts to make life worth living without him, all of our glory pirating and robbing of his glory, trying to make ourselves look better than we ever should, our prideful arrogance and thinking that we can do things on our own without someone else's assistance, much less God's, all of that. We have to own all of that. That's our sin that we needed to be purified from. And so you see, it's our sin that defiled our souls. We did that. So our hearts are soiled. And it's rendered us morally filthy and unclean. And this infinitely beautiful and holy and righteous God is offended by that. And we're separated from him because of that. And so though we fully, fully deserve it, he purely out of the grace that flows through him determines that though we deserve nothing but condemnation in hell, he's going to give his son freely and joyfully And redeem us for his glory. See the one thing that we needed most. To be done in the whole entire universe. Has been done fully and finally by Jesus. 
You see, that, that's, you know, that would be a good statement to keep around because the next time that you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, the next time that you feel like life's coming unraveled around you, the next time that you feel like you're getting a raw deal, things aren't working out, it's just miserable, all you can see when you look forward is cloudy days and doom and gloom. Just stop, just, just stop your little pity party and just remind yourself, wait a second. The one thing that I needed more than anything else, not all the things we're upset about, not all the things that we wish were one way that are a different way, beyond all of those things, the greatest need that we ever had has been completely and utterly met and satisfied in Jesus. That's good news. Especially for somebody like me. He shed his blood. That was the only hope I had. And he did it. And I ran and ran and ran. And he didn't shut the door. He didn't lock the door. He didn't turn his back. He stayed with me. And he got me. And he got you. And you didn't deserve it either, but he did. And so you may have some things going wrong. You may have some, some trials and some struggles and some fights. and some. And may, but listen to me, the greatest. Look, I mean, I get so frustrated. I turn on the TV and just the foolishness of people. They're running around. Trying to win the Powerball. And let me tell you something. Every time I see that, this is what I think. I don't care if it was a gazillion dollars. I got something so much better than that. I mean, I'm not running around trying to win the Powerball. I won the Powerball the day I got saved. I mean, that's the Powerball. I mean, that is the jackpot of all jackpots. What I needed, what I could never get, and here's the thing, what I can never lose, we got. Mm. So filthy people like us, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, your body, soul, and spirit, and present you blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Woo! Blameless. If it wasn't for Scripture, there'd be no sentence that had my name and blameless in the same. It wouldn't exist. But the Scripture says, y'all better get ready because my day's coming. Sanctified completely. So the gospel is the simple but breathtaking truth that Jesus Christ has provided for sinners a perfect sacrifice for sin that will cleanse and purify them and provide for them a righteousness in which they can stand with God for all eternity. You see, the purifier, how did the purifier purify? Did the purifier purify by removing all of the sin? 
and then leaving a vacuum or a void. You see, now that wouldn't work because then we would just have nothing. So if we didn't have any sin, but we didn't have anything, we, we couldn't stand in righteousness because we don't have any of that. It just remove all the sin, but then what's there, right? But you see, when you purify something, what you do is you remove all of the bad, and then what's created is something pure, right? And something. So what is created? The sin is removed, and then in removing our sin, he takes our sin upon him, and then he gives his righteousness to us. And so our filthy, dirty cup is taken away. He takes that on him, and he puts his perfect, perfect righteousness in the place of what was once our sin. So he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we would be the righteousness of Christ in him, in him. So a year from now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9, look at what it says. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... Not as it's going to be, but as it is right now, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to pay, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Whew. If I live to Hebrews chapter 9, I'm liable to just, I might just have to run somewhere. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And then finally, the seventh one is ruler. As we come up and crest over the top of this mountain peak and start to look out over the expanse and the breathtaking things that we've already seen along the way, but now he's the radiance, he's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh. Now, what significance is there in such a seemingly simple declaration? It almost seems like a letdown. He sat down. What do you mean he sat down? Oh, no, it's not a letdown. See, first of all, to be seated is to be enthroned. You see, the only person seated is the king. Everyone else is either standing before him or bowing. But only the one who's sitting in the throne is seated. And so he's enthroned in his seating. So he's, it's a declaration that Jesus is king over all things and all people. He's the king. Now this king, King Jesus, he reigns in power and in royal supremacy over all nations, all armies, demons, presidents, weather, your life, my life, you name it. It doesn't matter. It's all under his authority. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every single thing that is is under his kingship. He is the universal, all-time king of kings, lord of lords. When he sits on the throne, he's sitting on the throne as the ruler. The royal supreme ruler over all things. And so he sits down. 
Now, secondly, to be seated at someone's right hand in particular is the position of honor and privilege. It's the highest honor and privilege. And so you can look throughout all the Old Testament, through the Psalms, and all, I mean, I listed out a whole bunch of scriptures there for you to see all of the ways and all of the, the you, could, you could do a, we could have a whole entire sermon about all the ways that the, the Bible teaches us that sitting at the right hand is, is, is honored. It's honored. It's, it's the p- position of victory. It's the position of, of, uh, of, of royalty. It's the position of, of lo- most genuine love and relationship. I mean, it's just a, a dozen ways that it's laid out. And so there he sits in that position. But then thirdly, and most importantly, after making purification, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God as a sign of his sufficiency and his finality of his atoning sacrifice. See, he sat down because he made purification for sins once and for all. You see, he sat down because it was done. He sat down because it was finished. He sat down because there was nothing else to do. There was no more, there was no more work to be accomplished. It was all fully accomplished. So the hearers would understand, and we should too, that a priest in the Old Covenant would have remained standing the whole time they were working, doing their priestly duties. It was never finished. The sacrifices were never done. You never performed your last sacrifice. It was a never-ending, ongoing, all-the-time process. And so the altar would burn 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It would burn, it would burn, they would keep it burning because it would never end because there was always sacrifice to be made because there was always people, there was always sin. Things had to be atoned for, always. But once Christ atoned for our sin. He sat down. It was finished. Finally taken away. So when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Done. Done. Finished. So what does this mean? I think it means a lot of things, but I'm going to give you a few. So I want you to think about this as you leave tonight. These seven things mean That you need never again live in fear that your sins will bring you into eternal judgment. You need never again fear that. It means that you need never again live in fear of death in any way. Because leaving this life leads you into eternal fellowship and intimacy with God because of the finished work on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you need never worry about anything or anyone that can threaten to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It means that you can never again be crippled by guilt or by shame for all the ways in which you failed others or sinned against a holy and righteous God who saved you. It's been taken care of. It means that you need never again strive or strain to work and labor to win God's favor or approval. It means that you need never again live in anxiety or fear about whether or not God has, has done enough to make atonement for all of your shortcomings and all of your sins. It means you need never again wonder whether when you stand in God's presence on the day of judgment, will you be properly prepared and thus find acceptance with your creator? You need not worry about that because you don't stand in your righteousness. You stand in his, with his record. It means that you need never again live 
in conformity with someone else's expectations of you or in accordance with the rules that they have set down for you, as if by doing so somehow you might again become truly spiritual and then be acceptable not only to them but also to God, never again. It means that you can now and forever breathe a deep sigh of relief and be filled with joy inexpressible because the fullness of the glory and knowledge of a perfect sacrifice for sins has been offered for all of our guilt yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. It's all been wiped away completely clean that by faith in Jesus Christ alone we stand clothed in His righteousness. So why do we wring our hands and fret? Don't let the world sneak up on you as if it has some power over you. Jesus Christ has done it all. And if you know him tonight, if he is your father, if you've been born again to a living hope through him and him alone, listen, you have it all, everything. It can never get any better than what you received in him. So you can go through anything, anything. Let the world clamor with their trinkets. Let them try to point you to if you had this or you did this, you'd be happier or better. Or it's all futility. Jesus is infinitely, infinitely better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.